You're listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with Global Soul. Check, check, one, two. Look like a little country. Some rock and roll and blues. Cause we sure love playing for good people like you. Let me know if you can hear me Check, check, one, two Welcome to Music Local and Sustainable, the radio show that features discussions with and the music of local musicians. I am your host, Dave Lake. Tonight on Savannah Music Local and Sustainable, we have the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic, Sinesha Sirik. Welcome, Sinesha. Thank you for having me. And so why don't we tell the audience about your musical background, your musical journey. How did you become a concert violinist? My parents actually were the ones who had this initiative in the beginning. In my neck of the woods, I come from Serbia, Eastern Europe. We have a very organized, systematic music education. So if you want to take lessons or you want to learn an instrument, there is a public music school that's a separate institution from your elementary school and middle school and so forth. So you would go there and if you pass an audition as a young child, you would be given a chance to study an instrument free of charge. It's a public school. So when I was about seven years old, my parents took me to music school and I took an audition. Violin was not my first choice. It was actually guitar, a clarinet, and accordion. Because accordion was very popular, and it still is in Serbia. After my audition, there's a couple of teachers there, and they test you for your rhythm and musicality and all sorts of things. And then you sing two songs, and they kind of test your oral skills and things like that. And they told my parents, oh, it would be actually with no disrespect but it would be a shame if he didn't try to play violin because he has good rhythm and coordination and all sorts of things that that would be nice to have before you even start playing violin so that's how i ended up playing violin and i guess i was a good kid i practiced and you know i think a lot of my colleagues there can say the same thing that we are products of a good systematic education. I had a a teacher from very beginning that took great care of me and he was my idol. He was just a young teacher that came off conservatory. So we are still friends today. I actually been helping him with his kids because they also play violin. So whenever I'm in Serbia, I, I kind of stop by and I see them and they, they play for me. So it's like a, a little checkup and master class. If you... And then in high school, I also had a great teacher who also had this personal connection with me. We were taking theory and, and counterpoint and everything. And that was, you know, since I was like 14 or something. And then you go into conservatory, which is a natural kind of progression from there. I briefly considered switching or actually adding to my load law school, but that that was just uh, just a brief thing. <laughs> and then it was all about music. I actually played sports pretty actively, so that was one other thing that could kind of take me on another path. 
but no, I, I stuck with music and never had any regrets. <laughs> then I came here after I graduated from conservatory and then got my first job while I was at the conservatory. I was in opera house there and I was playing for about three years, almost four. And then I got a full-time job at the Radio Symphony in Belgrade. That's when with my ex-wife decided maybe we should expand our horizons and I was always wondering what's out there. I had many lessons and master classes with people that came from abroad to Serbia, but till then never actually thought about going to study abroad. And then that whole turmoil in Serbia and it's a different conversation, but year 2000 we started thinking about maybe we should go and get our graduate degrees somewhere. A friend who was at the time in Atlanta, Georgia State, was our connection to the United States in general. So we ended up in Atlanta, and then it's a long story about how I heard of my teacher that I actually ended up studying with at UGA, Levon Bartumian, and I was there for my master's and doctorate. So I spent about nine years altogether at UGA as a teaching assistant and a graduate student. Last two were, I was off campus. But yeah, from 2003 to 2012. So I actually, when I became concert master here, I was still a doctoral candidate at UGA. So that's my kind of path. Your master's degree and your doctoral degrees are in violin performance. Yes, violin performance. And then I have also a master's in viola performance because that was kind of a requirement on a doctoral level at UGA that you'd pick a major and a minor. And um, I was briefly considering picking up a baton and conducting, but I don't know. I was busy at the time, and I was playing a lot, and that seemed like something that would be a crossroads. I, I don't know if I could do it on the side. I, maybe I should have. That, that was just the way I was thinking then. It's like 15 years ago, and I'm absolutely a different person in 15 years. I don't know who does not change. <laughs> So maybe if I was thinking about it now, maybe I should have done that. But viola was natural for me, and I just added on that side. I don't play it as often as, as I would like to. I think it's, it's a very good thing to practice for violin players. I think it really improves the sound and the sound production. And I would love to play it more, but I just from where I'm sitting and what I'm doing... There's just not enough chances for me to do it. Why do you say that playing the viola helps your sound production as a violinist? So it's a very interesting point, and this is something that I actually heard when I started playing viola. I heard from my teacher, Mark Newman, at UGA. But then, of course, I was following what's happening around and, and watching master classes and and of course, the, the famous hybrid violin viola player, one of the best in the world ever, you know, Pinka Zuckerman, said the same thing. So I totally believe, and I found it on my own playing that it's really true. And it's true because viola being a, a little bit bigger and with thicker strings requires, as we say in our world, a heavier arm. And if you don't have one, you have to develop the way of playing in which your bow would sort of sink into the string a little bit better. 
And it has also a resonance to the sound that violin does not have. So once you feel that resonance, I found that when I was really playing violin and viola on a daily basis, that I was looking for the same resonance in the sound of the violin, even though I would not necessarily get it instantaneously. But when you get your ears used to that kind of reverb, because it's nice, it's good to have it. It's really easy to 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 phrase and to make music on an instrument that gives you that natural fade out of the sound. On violin, you pretty much have to, I won't say cheat, but you are giving people an impression that that's happening. So it does not really give you that much reverb as much as you are making people believe that that's your sound and that's so full and and resonant. So it's a mix of things. And then you start experimenting with those things. And of course, that heavier arm also results in in a better sound production on a violin if your actual instrument can take it. Uh, control, the speed of the bow is a little bit slower on the viola than on the violin. Then you start also, because there's a difference in size, anywhere from one to two inches, the bow placement, even though it's the same technically on both instruments, the bow placement on the violin is different than on the viola. They both, you place your bow for both instruments of course between the bridge and the end of the fingerboard but viola being bigger means that your bow is going to go a little bit further away in terms of your arm your right arm being open a little bit more so you also become aware of this placement of the bow and how does that affect the sound much more obvious than you would eventually on the violin and then left hand Of course, viola being bigger, you have to adjust a little bit, so your intonation might suffer in the beginning. But again, it's such a great exercise. It's like you're going to a gym to lift some weight. So you're working out your fingers. They're getting stronger because for viola, you need to have a little bit different approach to certain extensions. Then vibrato. I mean, I can go on and on how much you start thinking about what you're doing rather than just do it naturally because you're used to. As soon as you start thinking, mostly good things happen. You either find out what you've been doing wrong and how you can improve it, or you become aware that what you've been doing right is why you are doing it. So when you want to teach somebody, which is another angle on on the whole thing, when you can verbalize the motions... I think those coaches in sports or in, 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 you know, in music, you know, teachers are the ones who are actually very successful in teaching when they can verbalize actions that they are producing so the students can learn from, from that kind of process of, okay, I'm doing this, so that means that, and vice versa. So it made me definitely, I'm 100% certain of that. It made me a better player. Uh, of course, then you learn a, a new clef to read, <laughs> which is another thing. That was a little struggle in the beginning because I was transposing. I was not actually reading. So there is a way that you can actually transpose music without knowing what you're doing. And, of course, that was a shortcut. 
but that lasted only for like a couple of months. And then, of course, you know, you, you just have to uh, learn alto clef. And being a violinist, you don't ever play in any other clef. There's nothing that, that you would move away from your whole life. You don't need to basically learn any other clefs. Of course, you learn it through, through school, at least bass clef. But, you know, adding alto to it, and of course, then, why is all that good? I mean, we can go with this for hours. <laughs> you know, in theory, why would be good? So. Tonight on Savannah Music Local and Sustainable, we have the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic, Sinesha Sirik. I really appreciate the ability to play more than one instrument that is very similar and the fine differences it takes and the cognitive skill that it takes yeah. to do that. It's really interesting because you're now really use cognitive skills every time you approach the violin and not just use motor memory. I, I also play a little bit of guitar. I play bass guitar a little bit, play piano because I had to learn it in school. I was never good at it. I know basic principles. I mean, if I sit down, yes, I could maybe in a month or so, a two-part invention by Bach, but that, that would be my limit. But yeah, I mean, all these things add to your understanding of, for example, later on, if you ever venture into using a conductor's score, as a soloist, you, you actually would need to, many ways, to learn how to read the score and be a, aware of what's happening in the orchestra while you're playing your solo part. That's just an integral part of preparation for the performance. So, you know, I don't know if you would need to go necessarily into all the intricacies of transpositions that French horns do and B-flat clarinets and flat clarinets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you could tell basically what's happening on the larger scale. Adding any skill to your skill set can never be bad. I mean, it, it will just improve your depth of understanding of the subject. So anything that you can apply to make yourself a better player, absolutely. But I have no sympathy for having to learn a second clef. <laughs> uh, that's the one problem with low string instruments is that thanks to modern composers that feel if you've got a fingerboard, you can play all the way to the end of your fingerboard with your left hand. Yeah. I had to learn bass and alto and treble clef. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little bit of a, a mental gymnastics yeah, when it comes it is. to that. Right. Which I, I'm sure adds to your, uh, I'd say, vibrancy of mind down the road. And I heard so many examples and read some articles about how much anything that's in the avenue of Alzheimer's and, you know, those kind of diseases are actually at least postponed to much later stage in life if you're keeping your mind active and occupied. And then, you know, picking up an instrument in, as an adult, and I had so many adult students that I worked with, and it's always an incredible thing to see that determination of somebody, you know, that wants to learn violin and, you know, in his late 40s or, you know, mid 50s or something like that, because it's really respectable. And it's something that gives you another, I'm sure, 10 or 15 years of a hobby that will keep your mind occupied. Plus, if you never played an instrument before, ever, and you're just starting, it's never late for certain things. If you start playing the 
coordination between your entire body and your mind definitely starts new connections in your neurons and everything. I mean, the parts of the brain that you never used before will suddenly need to be awakened. Even if you're 50 years old or 60, they will need to wake up, which is an incredible thing. You just imagine, you just had part of the brain that you just never used and that only can be accessed by doing something like playing an instrument. So it's really an incredible thing. I think, you know, the music is an integral part of, of our lives on many levels. We are sometimes, we just forget how much we are surrounded by music, everyday life, and how weird our life would be without music because we just take it for granted. And I know this situation now, for sure, made some people think about, okay, so what happens when you don't have live performances, when you can't go to the concert, when... And I'm not talking about classical music. I'm talking about everything. Now, even pop artists cannot have big tours and concerts. We're all sitting home, more or less, trying to access our audience through Internet and through radio. So then you start realizing, oh, my God, I mean, I, this was like you know, accessible on, on every day and when I, when I wanted, and suddenly you know, I could not choose where to go and which concert to attend, and now there is absolutely nothing. So I hope that this will also change some way of thinking about how much do we appreciate what music means to us. Yeah, it was really interesting because in a conversation that Kei Harada was mm-hmm. having with another conductor, mm-hmm. they talked about some orchestras, such as the Detroit Symphony, yeah. that has been ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. and that they've been doing online stuff for years now. Mm-hmm. And so to do some of the things that people are suggesting you do, for instance, perform without an audience mm-hmm. and stream that performance, they're way ahead of the curve and they're already doing that sort of stuff. So when they have a lot of stuff in the can, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. it's the same as as the Berlin Philharmonic. They've got so much stuff in the can that they can just pull out archives that you could have a weekly concert without ever repeating it for years. That's absolutely true. I can tell you from my own perspective, I'm not surprised actually because that, but for example, I, I believe NBC Radio Orchestra was the last radio orchestra that was active in the United States. I don't think that there was any other radio orchestra beside NBC back in the day. And in Europe is is actually quite different. You know, almost every major city has a a public radio station, and a part of that public radio was a a radio symphony orchestra. And you were in a radio symphony orchestra. Exactly, and I was in and that's what I'm trying to go with, with this observation. Radio symphony was usually in charge of playing classical programs and all that goes into that realm of music, but we were also playing all sorts of pop music and playing concerts that would fall into category of light music. But we also, a big chunk of what we were doing was recording Serbian composers, for example. That was in order to preserve the heritage of Serbian music scene. So there was a kind of a committee that would decide, okay, of these young composers or accomplished composers, every month we'd have six or seven pieces on the list that we would, in our 
or rehearsal and recording time go into the hall and you know record these things some of them for archival some of them for publishing so to be a recording orchestra playing without audience was just a regular thing you know you just go in there's nobody there i think it's a really interesting concept of how you switch we had a night before a concert at eight o'clock at night and then you come next day into work you get your music a lot of times we would just sight read that's why i guess my sight reading comes from because we would never see this music and they just put it on a stand okay we're recording this today and two services like five hours maybe it would go for next three days if if it's a larger piece we were lucky that we were actually rehearsing and performing on the stage of a hall that we were playing our concerts. So all chairs are where they are, and you just sit there. And it's a, and the only thing that would matter and would be different is there is a red light in the middle of the orchestra. And when that goes on, you're recording. When that goes off, you're done. So it was literally like a circus act. You just sit down, it's like red light, you play, you play, you play, you play, and it goes off. <laughs> so, so and, and that was like, you know, that, that's what we've been doing. 50% of our load was that kind of work. So for me, I already experienced that kind of empty hole, and you're giving everything you have because of, of the music that you're recording. It has nothing to do if somebody is sitting in the audience or not. And I'm sure now, when you think about it, Musicians are used to it, especially the ones on the on the higher level, you know, orchestras that were recording on a regular basis. And you don't have to go far to find those. I mean, Atlanta is one of the most recorded uh, symphony orchestras in the States. And, you know, all those recordings happen without, you know, without audience in the hall. I think you can adjust to it. Now, what are we losing without audience is... is Absolutely, that excitement that a group of people brings into the room. And there was famous conductors around the world that actually, one of the most famous for that practice was Sergio Chilibidake. 90% of his recordings were live recordings, especially with Munich Philharmonic. He did not believe in recordings without audience. So they would actually have a series of concerts, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, with the same program as usual and then they would record all three some recordings went without any editing were an amazing orchestra they would maybe put a symphony out of three days but movements itself themselves were not edited they would go into in their entirety and you can hear some minute mistakes which obviously were not important because it was more important what kind of performance they were giving, what kind of uh, excitement, what was the emotion, what was the, the moment that was caught on tape. And I don't know if, if that's the right or wrong approach, but I, I can tell you that I always enjoyed their recordings. They're not that famous among, say, wide audience and people that you know always go for Berlin Philharmonic or Vienna or New York or some major orchestras, meaning he's not a major orchestra, but, I mean, you'd be surprised if you actually go and listen to some of those, how good they actually are. Tonight on Savannah Music Local and Sustainable, we have the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic, Sinesha Sirik.
and that really sort of brings up a sort of related issue, and that is the communication between the orchestra and the audience. If from your viewpoint, and you can speak as a chamber musician, as a orchestral member, as the member of the orchestra who leads the orchestra, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as a soloist with an orchestra, mm -hmm. in all or any of those combinations, what is the relationship between the musicians on stage and the audience? Mm -hmm. You know, I think you go through stages as you're growing as a musician. You go through stages of acceptance and, and how comfortable you are getting on stage. As a young performer, there is always this sort of bravery on a different level when it comes to getting out and performing. So it's all about, okay, I got to you know, get my notes together and my music. You go on stage, you go out and you play, and you're almost fearless. As, as a kid, you know, you, you just don't have that perception of people are looking at you and thinking about, you know, why I did this and why I did that and this was not as good. You just go out and play. And then, of course, as you get into your adolescence years when you're starting to become more aware of yourself, that's where a lot of people actually have some crisis about going on stage, playing for other people, because they associate their personalities being judged rather than their performances. So if you go out and if you did not play that well, you'll think that people will think that you are not as good as a person, which is just a developmental stage. And, of course, music helps if you can gather yourself and you kind of go, you know, in that performance. So you are, I would say, building this relationship with audience over the years. And it doesn't matter who is sitting in the audience. You're just going through a developmental stage. You know, f for me, it's almost the same if I'm playing in Serbia, if I'm playing plants, if, if I'm playing here. The audience is this wall of people that you see from the stage, a group and a wave that's alive and it kind of moves and bubbles, but you're in your zone and you're kind of playing. And then as you're becoming more comfortable with yourself and I think more confident and you start believing more in your own abilities, then you start actually noticing who's in the audience. A lot of times in the beginning, I was afraid to look into the hole see people, if I'm going to maybe even recognize somebody or just I was not interested in who's out there. And then, as I said, as you, you start gaining confidence and you start being more, I guess, comfortable with being on stage and people looking at you, you start actually looking into the audience. That was, for me, a, a major change. And that's when I realized that those are actual people. They're not props. <laughs> it's like actual people there that I should connect to. They're here to enjoy what I'm doing. They're here not to point fingers at me. We're actually all here for the same reason, and that's to enjoy music. So that's where my, I guess, anxiety and, you know, nervousness about performances that, that I had in the, in the past, and I'm sure, you know, everybody went through the somewhat similar process, started kind of fading out 
not that I would never get anxious or excited about performance, but this was more in a negative way in the past than, than what it is today. So that connection, I think it's, it always evolves into something, you know, depending on where you are in your life and how you feel about performance. And I can tell you that, you know, for example, if I'm playing with my quartet, Balkan Quartet, that's a different type of performance. I almost have a different mindset when it comes to that. First of all, it's because we interact with audience. We actually talk in the, the pieces, all four of us take turns and explaining if what we are doing, talking a little bit about pieces that we are playing because we learned very, very early in our quartet existence that in concerts people really wanted to hear us explain the music that we were playing just as an introduction to them because it was a bit far from their regular playlists. And it didn't take much. And we realized it's not actually talking about pieces because they don't know it. It was just actually to get to know us. And that distance that classical musicians in the past often had was like, okay, they go on stage speak nothing, they take a bow, put their instrument up, or sit down at a piano, they play, finish the piece, take a bow, and leave. I mean, if you came to somebody's house and did that, it would be just ridiculous. He didn't say hello, he didn't ask how are you. I mean, there's absolutely no human interaction. I believe you, you can say, okay, there's arguments for those. That's an absolute music. You know, you're just, you're just supposed to come here and just listen to music. We're not supposed to make even an eye contact. Supposed to be totally immersed in music without any distraction. I just don't believe in that. I mean, it'll be hard to imagine, as I said, if you're just walking and you're interacting with another human being, that you say nothing on purpose. And you just play, take a bow, and leave the stage. And then they come backstage, your fans, and they want to talk to you as a performer. And you feel so great when people come to you and they ask you. I mean, I, I know only of very few historical figures and performers that did not like people coming backstage and, and asking them questions or congratulating them. So you actually want to hear these compliments to your playing because it's a confidence boost and you feel good about your performance. So why then take that out of the equation? So, you know, we always did that as a, as a quartet and we greeted people before and after and, of course, as I said, during the performance. And everybody, every concert we ever played had the same reaction. And everybody was saying, oh, I love that you're talking about pieces and that we actually interact with audience and I think that's just that human side to performance but you know when I'm playing solo now after my experiences with quartet I like to do the same thing I at least welcome people and say something before I start playing so I, I never ever just go out on stage without actually saying something and I think that should be an, an etiquette that, that should change for symphony orchestras as well. Like, let, let the soloist say something. At least, thank you for coming. I mean, I really appreciate it that so many of you showed up tonight to hear me play. That's just a, a normal thank you. 
So I don't know. Maybe we should think about <laughs> changing those rules <laughs> you know, on a regular basis. <laughs> or after the concert. You know, or or after. About, I, I can understand where the mental mindset mm-hmm. of yeah, a soloist true. or any instrumentalist you don't want to disrupt that, mm-hmm. but to get some further insight and to get some of that personal interaction, because it's it's really great, particularly if you're familiar with the performer and someone else is not. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a related story. I took my niece, who is a developing dancer, mm-hmm. to professional dance. She really had not been to really professional dance before, mm-hmm. so... She now lives in an area where I'm very familiar. It's the American Dance Festival is every year. And so last year we took her out to see professional dance and then learned when we were there that the choreographer was going to be in a conversation afterward. And I had seen this choreographer talk before. Hilarious person. Absolutely fabulous. And so personable. Uh, It's Mark Morris, the Mm -hmm. choreographer. And so I was so excited. And my niece was sort of, why are you so excited for them to talk? (laughs) Because you get so much more insight into the character of the individual, into the thought process of the individual when they're putting something together. And the ability to ask questions to me is just wonderful. And so you'll always see me at the pre-concert thing and you'll always see me at the post-concert thing. And at the Winnipeg New Music Festival, Mm -hmm. they do pre- and post-concert events where the performers tend to be at the post-concert events, a a panel talking about the milieu or talking about the concert coming up tends to be the first. Occasionally you'll see people, the same people at both, but generally they bring different people. But again, that's just so much information that you can use And so, yes, I greatly applaud coming out and saying words about what you're about to do, including in the symphony environment. This is WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM, WRUU.org. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with Global Soul. WRUU 107.5 FM is a new and different listener-supported and all-volunteer community radio station for Savannah. Our diverse broadcast and web programming is supported by generous listeners who value our passion and spunk. We are independent of other media and receive no government or large corporate support. People like you are the largest and most important source of our funding. Go to WRUU.org to find out how you can make a one-time or monthly contribution. Thank you. This is a message from the Georgia State Department of Public Health. Social distancing means minimizing contact with people. It also means that if you are near someone in public, try to stay at least six feet away. The less contact people have with one another means the less opportunity for the virus to spread. Slowing the spread of the virus means that we can keep our health care system from becoming overwhelmed. More information can be found at dph.georgia.gov. Now, 
you have a chance to support both Savannah Independent Artists and WRUU during this shelter-in-place order to stop the spread of COVID-19. Creatives in Need is a group of independent artists hosted by the Roots Up Gallery, which is collaborating with WRUU during this shelter-in-place to offer an online art gallery at www.rootsupgallery.com. For every work of art sold at this online gallery, the artists receive 80% from the sales and 20% goes to WRUU and its programs like Art on the Air. Interested listeners can go to www.rootsupgallery.com to start shopping today. Welcome back to Music Local and Sustainable, and I'm your host, Dave Lake. Tonight on Savannah Music Local and Sustainable, we have the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic, Sinesha Sirik. Listeners to my shows know that I blame Leopold Stokowski for everything that I don't like. <laughs> he undoubtedly had nothing to do with it, but he's a just good person to blame because he brought that formalization of the symphonic concert. I mean, back in the 1800s, if you got a standing ovation after the first movement, they repeated the first movement. And yes, I understand labor contracts and that yeah. sort of stuff too, where you can't do that. But, but he said, absolutely not. We play it the way it was written, and that is it. Oh, and by the way, you can't clap until the end. <laughs> you can't clap until the end. <laughs> and th- those you know, formal rules and regulations of being in a concert hall, I just rebel against. I agree with you, and, and I think, yes, to a certain extent, you have to keep somewhat of a flow of the piece, but to refrain yourself from excitement and to wait until the end to, you know, release all that's been brewing is somewhat frustrating. I think it would be far better if you educate audience, and you can only do it through, you know, verbalization of of what you're going to do or what you did and let them know that why if they need to refrain themselves from would be the case and why it would actually be good if they want to let that applause start what would they be doing and what would they be responsible for so I know it's a collective mind of a whole and people that are sitting there, and you never know how that's going to go one or the other way. But that's why your performance is there to sort of guide them through that. So that formalization, as you mentioned, I think it was definitely good for a lot of things. But then again, it it just was not as good for some other aspects of live performance as you would imagine. And I think English were the first one who started breaking off a little bit of that tradition, especially in the period performance world. They started narrating almost their performances and talking about pieces and giving people introductions to pieces. Just one side note, for my quartet, we do not write program notes. Sometimes we even change the order of pieces on the spot just because we are gauging the audience response to it and, and how they can respond to our music. Why are we not writing program notes? Is because you give people something to read, 
and they spend like first 15 minutes or 20 minutes of performance flipping through that program. They're obviously eager to get information. They want to know <laughs> what you are doing and what you're about to do. But in all that, they're almost putting music on a back burner because they're reading the text. So they might be just kind of like they're sitting in their comfy chair at home reading a book and then listening to music in the background. And you came to the live performance. So I, I don't believe that music for a second could be a, a background music if you are in the hall. So why not then say, for example, why don't you read those programs before, come 15 minutes earlier, <laughs> read those programs, as soon as we start playing, put them away and enjoy don't bury yourself in the programs. Read the other half in the intermission. Why don't you look at those performances? That's why you came to the live performance, because there is some visual things to take, as well as the audible things, too, of course. So that's, that's what I really think, that that information could be shared in a different way than just, okay, here is the little booklet, and good to take it with you, and it's advertisements for sponsors and for everything. That, that's all that. Absolutely understand the purpose of it. But just the type of information that it's in there. I think those program notes have been around in the same format forever. <laughs> they just give you a nice bio of the composer and I'd say a list of movements and they explain what is they going to hear. So maybe there's something there that could be changed a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I'll give you permission to blame Leopold Stokowski for program <laughs> okay. notes. We'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tonight on Savannah Music Local and Sustainable, we have the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic, Sinesha Sirik. So you don't scream at me when I'm sitting in the front row because I tend to be a front row sitter, even though one should really know the hall and then decide where to sit based upon the hall. Mm-hmm. I was at a concert in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, I bought my front row tickets. Uh, and then I had a chance to talk to a composer whose work was being done at that performance. Mm-hmm. And he was familiar with the hall because he was a local kid growing up and moved away and went to school. But mm-hmm. still, they invite him back and, and do premieres of his works. He said, you know, you really should be sitting, he pointed up to the balcony, because the way it was, the hall was uh-huh. shaped, that would be the best place to be. I didn't quite do that, but I did sit in a couple different locations during a rehearsal, because I was invited to the rehearsal too. And it was amazing how different it was. But yeah. for performances, I tend to sit quite close, because I like to see what's going on with the different people at my choice because occasionally you'll see me go like this uh-huh. for the audience I'm folding my hands in front of me sort of almost like prayer closing my eyes and listening because I want to listen to a particular passage and I don't want the distraction uh-huh, uh-huh. of the visual yeah. so you'll see me do that but otherwise sometimes I'll be quickly going back and forth between different orchestra members if mm-hmm. there is a communication going on mm-hmm or try to focus on one particular group, particularly if the conductor has given me the cue. And occasionally, I will open the program 
But it's generally between movements because I'll say, shoot, what is the marking for that last movement? So I'll quickly look up the marking Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. to refresh my memory. I mean, that's my behavior. So if you see me doing those things in the front row, please don't stop in the middle and and scream at me. (laughs) No, no, no. That's so fine. No, I'm just thinking like, you know, those type of things, I don't know if it would make difference or not, but I'm just, as you were describing it, was thinking about you see operas done with translation going on as singers are singing. So that's not uncommon for classical music performances to put the lyrics. And I don't know if there was an experiment ever done with the symphony orchestra where you would do the same thing and people, at least the title of the movement, the tempo marking, and maybe as you go, this is a first theme, this is exposition, you explain the terms, something like that, and not be too intrusive to the performance, but just like, okay, we put that out there and what you're listening or... Maybe that's the way to go. We already are doing it for different concerts. You know? Well, it, I mean, occasionally you will see the person who is hosting the chamber music series at Spoleto Festival. Mm-hmm. Jeff will interact a lot with the audience, and he has been known to say, okay, he, there's going to be three themes here. Let's play the first theme. And so they play the mm-hmm. first theme. Okay. Then he said, here's the second theme. They play the second theme. And here's the third theme. They play the third theme. Now, I want you to raise your right hand when you hear the first theme. Come. <laughs> okay. I want you to raise your left hand when you hear the second theme come. And I want to have you raise both hands when you hear the third theme come. That is a very interesting way to get people involved and really closely listening because mm-hmm. when the first theme repeats again, unless it's a song that you're going to sing on the way out of the concert hall, a lot of people won't hear that again. Because sometimes it'll be in a different key. Sometimes it'll be yeah. structured a little bit differently. It's the same theme. It's just structured mm-hmm. a little bit differently. But if you make them concentrate on what they're listening to, yeah. it really would be effective. But <laughs> the thing you were talking about, superscripts, first theme come up yeah. and where they're playing and then second theme coming up and then watch the cellos or watch the first violins watch the way the first violins and second violins are interacting sort of like a running commentary yeah. i mean i think i would be like a nice guide through music that is unfamiliar to a lot of people i think you, you cannot expect that every audience member that's coming today to the concert knows all nine beethovens or all for Brahmses or Tchaikovsky's or whatnot, to the extent where they are on their own interacting with music. I think a lot of people need some guidance and, and help in, in understanding because they would appreciate more. And that's what I am stressing this education part of, of the whole equation here on many different levels, that that gives you a chance to enjoy things more because you have at least a basic understanding of principles and how many hours of practicing, of preparation, of studying, of devotion on many different levels and collective mind of an orchestra of 70 people sitting on stage revolving around one person in form of conductor, giving cues and kind of guiding everybody. It's just an amazing thing to witness how 
all these individuals that have their own tendencies and, and musicianship that's different emphasis. You know, we're all different as, as people have to come all together at one point and give you a piece of music that is produced collectively with all these different personalities. And we all moving in, in, in a very synchronized motion to the absolute minute detail and why a conductor would spend 15 minutes on two notes making sure that that happens there exactly the way that, that it happens. If you understand all these things and you're coming with that in mind, then I'm, I'm sure you'd be sitting for an hour and a half in a total awe. To me, it's fascinating. And then of course, I, from my own perspective, I cannot believe that everybody would share that same fascination about, about symphonic music and about m music in general. But I think if they just know a little bit about it, that they would be drawn into it. Tonight on Savannah Music Local and Sustainable, we have the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic, Sinesha Sirik. And to look at an orchestra and listen to an orchestra, you have 70-plus individuals who each have their own training, who each have their own style, who each have their own appreciation of the work that you're being played. But the finest orchestras is not 70 to 90 instruments. It's one mm -hmm. instrument, the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And the sound that is produced is so uniform. And it's like a great football team. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get a pass of the theme from the violins to the upper mm -hmm. register of the woodwinds. And you want to go out of your seat and, yes, that was a great pass. <laughs> it worked this time. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, of course, there are ways to get there as a major orchestra. And that's the tradition that has been in place for quite a few of, of those orchestras. They tend to hire musicians who come from almost that same schooling and education. And is it... On purpose or not, I, I can't discuss that. In audition, you can hear a certain tendencies for a certain orchestra. There are qualities that these orchestras are looking for. So you can almost say that, yeah, you, you probably will get those qualities if you studied or if you were exposed to people that are bearers of that tradition, which means that usually conservators that are in those major cities and you know they they're more than often very much connected to that orchestra you can talk about certain schools of orchestral playing austrian definitely with vienna and it's like really interesting how there's no much exchange between germany and austria it's almost like two separate schools and they sort of stay within their own realm but then you have French orchestras that play a certain way then of course Concertgebouw or English orchestras have a certain sound to them and then of course the American tradition of symphony orchestra is absolutely one of the best in the world and within that you can say a different sound from New York Philharmonic to Philadelphia to Boston to Cleveland to you know all the major orchestras around and you can see that those are pockets of, of, of every <laughs> one of those orchestras have 
a conservatory school in the city that obviously has to do something with creating these young musicians that at certain point in their careers become members of those orchestras and bring that tradition with them. So it's a very interesting concept, and I don't know, as I said, is it what's older, a hen or an egg? Where did that start? <laughs> and how is that going to play out in the years to come? But, you know, I think there is definitely something to it. In that same sort of line, talking about the orchestra and their orchestral sound, I know I'm going way back now, but how is it different being in a state radio orchestra mm-hmm. where you are performing, as you described, mm-hmm. you're performing one day and then that next day you, you know, you're actually mm-hmm. in the same hall and you're recording and then back to performing and you're mm-hmm. doing a lot of performances throughout the year versus an orchestra like the Savannah Philharmonic, mm-hmm. which has five concerts in a year. It's Maybe eight, seven, yeah. eight, mm-hmm. if you count things like the the Pops concert yeah, yeah. in the mm-hmm. park and that sort of stuff. How does that vary between those two environments to be a musician in an orchestra? Mm-hmm. Santa Harmonic is not full-time orchestra. We're per-service orchestra, as it's called in the industry. You know, every full-time orchestra has that routine of week after week after week of rehearsals and performances. I believe in the Radio Symphony where I worked, we had these periods of time where we would be very, very active, some periods that would slow down a little bit so you wouldn't have a performance every Thursday, Friday, or every Saturday or something. You know, we had also Sunday matinees that were not happening every Sunday. So, I mean, you would go through some cycles. You are seeing your colleagues on everyday basis and spend a lot of time together. I mean, if you have a a double service on a day, that's five hours of of rehearsing. That's one day and then the next day and then you go into the next week. So I'm sure there is a much closer interaction and relationships that are developed from just being with those people on a daily basis. And for some things, it's terrific. And you can imagine that for some aspects of performances is, is not that perfect to have that routine kind of settling in. So it it is important to break that routine from time to time a little bit. And that's why guest conductors, from other reasons. You know, if you were just seeing one person at that conductor stand all the time, I mean, I'm sure down the road after like two or three years, you, you wouldn't be able to look at that person or he would be able to look at you, especially make music on a regular basis. So you bring those guest conductors, then some people take a week of leave and then a sub-musician comes in and, you know, just to shake things up a little bit, to keep things alive. Samantha Philharmonic is not in that situation, so we basically play a season from September through May and we play one concert a month and people come from different areas, southeast and far as, as D.C. and New York, have musicians that come pretty far and travel to play with Savannah Philharmonic. So we have that excitement of friends and colleagues that see each other not that often. So we spend these two or three days in town. I live now in Savannah for past four and a half years, but I was coming from Atlanta. And this would always be a friendly encounter. And between rehearsals, we, we go out, have meals together, or a few drinks or whatnot, and then usually have Saturday off. So you have a whole day to kind of 
enjoy Savannah for its own charm and had nothing to do with music, just be in this great city and walk around and maybe even go to the beach or whatnot. So it's a different mindset for us when we are getting together than a, a, a full-time orchestra. So I think the excitement in our performances you can actually hear and witness, and I'm sure that a lot of people were complimenting this orchestra for its very, I'd say, lively performances and interaction with audience because there was a lot of energy, a lot of good vibes and good relationship that were obvious between players and sections and within the sections of the orchestra. Each has its own pros and cons, but we definitely lack one side, the time that we would have as a full-time orchestra to play together on, on everyday basis, and that always results in a more, I would say, gelled kind of performance where things are clicking just because they grew out of hours and hours of playing together rather than just being, you know, really aware of what's happening. You're trying to catch every single cue and moment of making sure things are together. I mean, those are definitely major differences. And, you know, it just depends. I think we are all enjoying it in our own ways. That's probably a challenge for the level of the performance there. Would you say, okay, we only get four rehearsals but we have not b been playing together for a month to prepare something like Shostakovich 5. That's just a beast of a piece to put together. And, you know, you just come in and you have these four rehearsals and it must happen, <laughs> you know, and you have one performance, which for full-time orchestras, there's usually more than one performance, you know, two or three of that piece. So, I mean, they have three or four rehearsals plus three performances. By the third one, I mean, things are gelling. And especially if you were playing the week before, it does not have to be Shostakovich, it could be a different symphony. And you have these players that spend so much time playing together, they know every single little cue, little breath that's taken somewhere or something. So you cannot expect that a per-service orchestra would be on that level of performance. But I think for what and who we are and what we are, I think we're doing a really amazing job in, in jumping through those hoops and making sure that when we get together, we sound like an orchestra that's been playing together for a long time. Tonight we have had Sinesha Sirik, the concertmaster of the Savannah Philharmonic Orchestra, and a musician in a multiple number of other small ensembles, which we haven't really even touched on yet. <laughs> Next time. Uh, uh, so I, but I want to thank you so very much for coming in and talking to us because this has been so wonderful. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much for having me, and I hope we're going to bring some interest to, to people to come to, to the kind of harmonic concerts whenever they start happening again with this beautiful chat and conversation we had. So thank you, Dave, for having me. But we have so much more to talk about. <laughs> so would you be able to come back next week? Yeah, sure. This has been another edition of Music Local and Sustainable, and I've been your host, Dave Lake. Save this time for another show next week. Well, I know we ain't headed for the Hall of Fame. Gonna give it what we got, man, that ain't no shame. Let me know if you can hear me. Check, check, one.
Check, check, one, two. 